KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. We have all been following the dramatic developments in Afghanistan as the U.S. pulls troops out and the Taliban takes back power. So how did we get here? Were the dramatic pictures and videos we saw over the weekend inevitable? What can we expect now? Wanted to talk all about the situation in Afghanistan, so we reached out to Dr. Dominic Tierney. He is a professor of political science at Swarthmore College. Fascinating conversation. Give a listen. So with regards to what we've seen in Afghanistan over the last few days, was this kind of always how it was going to end, whether it was now, five years from now, ten years from now? Was this what it was always going to look like pretty close when the U.S. decided to leave? Uh, Well, that's a great question. So whether this kind of grim outcome in Afghanistan was, uh, was preordained. It does make you look back to those days after the 9-11 attacks when, you know, the United States was basically united about the idea of going into Afghanistan. And most Americans saw the war as essentially good versus evil and justice for a terrible attack that America had endured. You had about 90 percent public approval for the initial invasion. And there were such hopes that the U.S. could bring some kind of democracy, some kind of freedom to to Afghanistan. And then, of course, fast forward 20 years and we see what looks like a a Taliban triumph. I would say that that outcome was not completely preordained back in 2001. I think that there were structural problems that the U.S. was always going to face. And we can talk about that. And, And the U.S. has always struggled in these kind of wars. But there might have been roads that were not taken that could have led us to a less costly result. But if you ask me, you know, by this summer, was a Taliban victory, you know, quite likely, I would say, yeah, it was quite likely. I think we were all pretty surprised, me included, with just how quickly the regime disintegrated. But to say the least, there had been warning signs for for weeks, months, and probably years. Yeah, you mentioned it happened so quickly. From what we can tell, Uh, Does it seem like the Taliban greased the skids with a lot of these regional governments and just said, hey, here's some money, get out of the way so that we don't have to? Because it is, I mean, it was breathtaking how quickly this all fell apart. I think that the sort of inside story of exactly what happened is still to be written. And uh, we don't know all the full details. But the striking aspect of the, the, the Taliban's sort of march on Kabul is how bloodless it was. There were a few places where, you know, elements of the Afghan military did stand and fight. But by and large, commanders surrendered, and they basically negotiated deals. And I think that this process of negotiating deals had really been in the works for a very long time. And it sort of speaks to a deeper issue, which is that we have never really understood the local dynamics in Afghanistan. And, it, you know, Afghanistan may as well be on the moon from the point of view of, you know, most Americans and, and even, frankly, most D.C. policy folks. While the Taliban live there, of course, and they do understand these local networks. So the fact that they were able to sort of negotiate these surrenders and, and, and sort of play on local kinship ties and all kinds of local networks, you know, speaks to a sort of like a, a layer of the war that we were just not really privy to. And it has led to this this extraordinary success. 
Talk to me a little bit about how we got here. And you mentioned, you know, we go into Afghanistan, wake of 9-11. You mentioned 90%. Yeah. So, but we all get that. The Taliban was toppled quickly. And even if you want to point to Osama bin Laden, 2011, he's captured and killed. That's 10 years ago. So how do we get to the point where we're 20 years in and we really don't quite understand why we were there and all the money and blood and treasure that's put into propping up this Afghan government can disintegrate over the course of a long weekend. I mean, it's, it just, it, it, it it's hard to get your head around. It, it is very hard to get your head around. Um, both the extraordinary journey that the U S and the Afghans have been on and the multiple problems and, and illusions that have been shattered along the way. You're talking about a 20 year war, the longest war, you know, people thought that Vietnam was a long war, but that was 1965 to you know, 1973. And, and Afghanistan is over twice as long, right? So the scale of this is it's incredible. You know, it's, it's you have service members' children, basically, <laughs> who are now adults. And, and, you know, my students, a lot of them weren't born when 9-11 happened. And, and this is just, this is just incredible. So, the short version, and there's obviously a lot to unpack, but the short version is that the United States was not paying a lot of attention to Afghanistan before 9-11. Al-Qaeda, which of course was on the US radar, was based there, and they carried out this extraordinary attack on 9-11. Um, the US then, in its righteous might, toppled the Taliban, who fled south toward Pakistan. I think that the Bush administration thought the war was over. The Bush administration did not want to get involved in sort of a large-scale nation-building mission. What they wanted to do was just move on to the next enemy of freedom, which was going to be Saddam Hussein. And by the way, he wasn't going to be the last one because it was going to be Iran after that, right? It was this incredible hubristic mindset. But of course, the Taliban was not defeated. They were in trouble. And they were, you know, basically hiding out in the mountains between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And they were really struggling, but they weren't defeated. They had their sanctuary. And it's actually in 2002 that what for me is the, 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 the most tragic road that we could have gone down. Because in 2002, the Taliban reached out to the United States. And they basically said that uh, we've lost. Okay, we are willing to accept a negotiated deal. Um, we don't know exactly what would have been negotiated, but the Taliban might have evolved into a political party, been allowed to sort of return to Afghanistan proper. Maybe the you know, Mullah Omar comes back to Kandahar and the sort of is a kind of spiritual leader or something. And they were willing to accept something like that. And the the amazing thing is not that the Bush administration sort of looked at that. Uh, option and sort of said, well, you know, the, the cons outweigh the pros. They didn't even consider it. It wasn't even considered because at the time, it's so hard to remember it now where everyone's so weary. At the time, we thought the Taliban and Al-Qaeda were the same guys. They were these bad guys and we were putting them in one bucket and they were all going to be taken out. And it was this sort of righteous, crusading mindset that meant we were not going to negotiate with basically Nazis. That was the that was the the, the view. 
But of course, what happens, that was the time to negotiate. That's where we did have the cards. That's where we did have some leverage, but we didn't consider it. And then quick story is in the subsequent years, the Taliban slowly, slowly reemerged. By 2006, that you see a nationwide insurgency. And when Obama comes to power, you know, he sees Iraq as the bad war, Afghanistan as supposedly the good war, and actually does support a big surge of troops. The surge is quite brief. It sort of holds the line for a little bit, but the Taliban just kind of retreat. And then uh, Obama just reduces the number of troops dramatically. Then you have Trump come into power. He basically wants to wind down the war. Um, and he has his own sort of view of things. And he makes this deal with the Taliban last year. Um, and then Biden comes into power and he's determined to end the war. So it's no surprise to me that he is, he is at the end of the day, just drawn a line. How much of what President Biden can do, how much were his hands tied by what was negotiated by the Trump administration? Is that fair to say that there wasn't a lot of wiggle room or would he... Could he have just said, no, we're not doing we're not doing what the, the previous administration did. We're going to do it this way or there would have been consequences to that, because I think one of the things that people forget is part of that deal was the Taliban wouldn't attack U.S. forces. And I'm guessing yeah. if Biden had started to kind of blaze his own trail, <laughs> that would have been a much different story. No, uh, I think that's exactly right. Um, so, I mean, for, for, you know, when you hear Trump and some of the other folks in the previous administrations sort of lay into Biden for, for weakness and, and so on, you do have to shake your head a little bit because the, the, the deal was, was pretty clear. The U.S. was supposed to leave in May of this year. Now, the Taliban also had some obligations, but the deal is extraordinarily vaguely worded. Um, this is not a, you know... <laughs> It's not the kind of document you'd have if you were going to buy a house, for example, you know, where you would nail down all the contingencies, right? It is very vague, and it's vague for a reason, so that neither side, especially the Taliban, feel that they are overly committed. So they're supposed to not allow Afghanistan to be a launch pad for international terrorism. Well, I don't think that's a huge priority for them now. And then what else did they promise to do? Well, they made a vague promise to enter into talks with the Afghan government, but they didn't promise to sort of take them seriously or make any concessions or really have them go anywhere. So you can debate whether that really means anything. And then the US uh, would leave. And yes, the Taliban said that the Taliban would not attack American forces as they left. But again, that's not a huge concession. As long as the American soldiers leave, the Taliban is fine with that. Um, so that's what Biden inherits. Now, is he necessarily bound by that? Well, there's a lot of ambiguity in the wording. Um, so he did have a little bit of wiggle room. And of course, he didn't pull all troops out by May. Biden's plan was to basically have U.S. forces leave before the 20th anniversary of 9-11, before September. So a little bit later than the, the agreement. And, you know, if Biden had been, you know, more hawkish, I think he could have either said this was a deal that Trump made that I don't like, or he could have said the Taliban has not entered into good faith negotiations with the government or et cetera, et cetera. They haven't lived up to their deal. And therefore, we are, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to slow the withdrawal or something like that. So it is a sign of where the Trump administration was, which is that they were really keen to get out of the war. I'm not sure that's the critical driving force behind Biden. I think much more important is Biden's own thinking, which is that. Since the Iraq war, Biden has been consistently dovish. This is the key thing. Uh, he, uh, as many people know, 
as a senator, authorized the invasion of Iraq in 2002. But then he quickly came to regret that as a terrible mistake. And if you look at Biden's record since, since the early point of the Iraq war, all through the Obama administration, nearly always he is uh, dovish. Um, and it'll, the voice in the room saying, let's not do this, let's not get involved. Uh, and I really think at the end of the day, Biden didn't want to hand this problem over to the next president and just felt it was his kind of his duty, basically, to end the war for better or for worse. The president's getting a ton of criticism now. Yep. Do you think this is a decision, if you and I talk in five years, does it look better? Does it look worse? Because I have a feeling this is a decision that you're not, it's not something you should be, if you want to be real and impartial about it, it's not something I think you can grade now. I, th I think that's a, a terrific point. Um, you know, you have all of these, you know, uh, these judges right now, maybe including me and others who are sort of coming out and offering their immediate evaluation, but it, it is going to take time to sort of really see how the chips fall and, and, and really see what the, the positive and negative effects of this are. And, and then of course you're comparing it to, you know, other roads that we might've gone down and, and, you know, whether, whether continuing the war would have realistically worked or not. Uh, and that, you know, maybe it will take years uh, for people to decide. My sense is that, you know, I think there were some folks in the Biden administration that believed that, well, if the Taliban will win, Americans just not going to care. Um, I, th I think there were some folks that people have got sick of this war a long time ago. It's a forgotten war. No one's paying any attention. And you can understand why, you know, most Americans had kind of switched off. For years, you know, people are in the bars and coffee shops or whatever are not talking about Afghanistan, right? You know, if if you if you raise the topic of Afghanistan to someone, it's like asking someone about their own mortality. It's like they want to kind of change the subject. It's like it's uncomfortable. They for a long time people just don't want to think about it. Well, I got to tell you, the Taliban's capture of Kabul has really had been a wake up call, right? It's all over the news. And I think a lot of Americans that were not paying attention to this are, are paying attention right this, uh, this second because it is such a, a visceral event and it's such a, a shocking event with these, you know, it's a parallels to Saigon in 1975 and all of these symbolic sort of triumphs, the horrible scenes at Kabul airport and people jumping out of the airplane and bodies and, and all this, this sort of stuff. So. This is absolutely going to enter the the zeitgeist. It's going to be remembered, uh, even if people are fuzzy on like what happened in the last ten years. They're going to remember this event. Now, how it is remembered is still up for grabs, and my my sense is that there are going to be some competing schools. One school will sort of sort of see this as you know proof that the U.S. should just not get involved in wars, and it's kind of like the Vietnam syndrome. So you'll have like the Afghan syndrome. And, you know, the next time there's a crisis, people say, let's not do another Afghanistan. And there'll be a, a kind of anti-war element, um, especially on the left, but actually not just on the left. There are some kind of populist Trump types who are also are kind of sick of these wars as well. So that's going to be one element. And then I think you're going to see another element that's kind of stab in the back, like Biden uh, lost the war. And that, that's the kind of more traditional hawkish neocon element that I, I, I don't think has disappeared. And they're going to be pushing a narrative that this was Biden's fault, typical liberal weakness, et cetera. So that you're going to have a, a kind of a dueling set of narratives about, about what this means. But 
the final thing I'll say is that, uh, and there's a lot more maybe we can discuss about this, but the, the war is not over, right? The, 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 there is this sense that I think people have reading the news that like the war's ended. You know, it's sort of like, oh, well, they won. They captured Kabul. That's it. Right. OK, just close the page, you know, close the book on the Afghan war. That's over. Uh, well, no. Right. The Taliban now have to run the country. And um, there are a lot of scenarios where there's instability and conflict and, and renewed war in Afghanistan is going to present new issues for the U.S. So how the U.S. handles the next phase um, uh, in all kinds of different ways could have a huge effect on sort of the point you get to, which is like what's going to be the longer term memory of this. To the point about the Taliban, and it's interesting. How would you describe the Taliban? Are they a political party? Are they a militia? Are they a gang? Like, I think people hear this, they know they are ruthless. They do awful things specifically to, to women and non-believers. But how would you describe them? And is it this basically the same Taliban from 1999, 2000, 2001? You hear a lot of people kind of waxing that they're hoping they have mellowed a bit, that it's a different situation. I think. I personally think that's a little naive from what I know, but what as someone who studied this kind of explain the Taliban and whether there is any hope that they could be a little different. Uh, well, the very, the very quick version is, you know, they emerged in the 1990s um, and they emerged from the context of Afghanistan being in a civil war. Now, ironically, part of that conflict there was in, in a sense unwittingly caused by the United States because back in the eighties, the U.S., of course, was focused on the Cold War. The Soviets had invaded Afghanistan, and the U.S. funneled weapons to the Mujahideen rebels um, fighting the Soviets. It was seen as very successful because the Soviets withdrew in, in 1989. Well, the Mujahideen didn't turn into the Taliban or you know, immediately turn into al-Qaeda, but it, it's some of the same characters. You know, these wars go on so long, it's often like their children, right? Um, but the, but the Taliban is emerging from that wreckage as a um, Islamist uh, Sunni group that has an extremely puritanical, strict view of Islam. They're not identical, of course, to you know Al Qaeda or ISIS, but there's overlapping elements in their in their their thinking. Let's say, uh, and in that civil war, eventually in the mid '90s, the Taliban basically is, is, is the, the dominant power in Afghanistan, although they never completely run the country. And when uh, the United States intervenes in 2001, you probably remember that the U.S. allied with what was called the Northern Alliance, which was sort of anti-Taliban elements. They only controlled a part of the country. But this gets to this point that the Taliban is going to have no easy time just dominating Afghanistan. There are lots of elements in Afghanistan that don't like the Taliban. So in any case, they are highly puritanical. You know, they're destroying the, the Buddhas and other works of art and, and the you know, human rights situation is, is abominable. Now, if we fast forward, a huge question is, is this, a different, is this a different Taliban? And I think that the short answer is that the jury is out and that you probably have a, um, a, a, a debate, if not pretty ferocious disagreement between different elements of the Taliban. There are elements that I say, would say are very hardline, you know, strictly believe in their interpretation of Islam and, and see any deviation from, you know, rules about dress and culture and so on as being heretical and want to basically go back to the 90s. 
And I also think you have, I don't want to say mo moderate, but only in relative terms, right? We're still, <laughs> by any reasonable standard, still extremely <laughs> conservative. Uh, relative moderates who sort of understand that Afghanistan has changed in 20 years. You know, it's a generation ago. You used to have basically no girls in school. Now, you know, maybe a third of girls are literate and, you know, there are women who are professionals and so on. Uh, and, and what we've seen in the last few days is maybe a tussle between those those two groups with perhaps the moderates at the moment having something of an upper hand. So in other words, the Taliban has not yet ferociously cracked down on you know the, the, the more liberal elements in Afghanistan, but it's early days and um, let, let's see how things play out. And if they really do you know, develop a kind of broad tent view of Afghanistan, that would be the smart option for the Taliban if they want to avoid a rebellion against them. And obviously the probably the most hopeful option for from a Western point of view, but there probably are hardliners within the Taliban who, who would say that that is absolutely you know, deviating from their pure principles. One of the real, if not the biggest tragedy in all this is women in Afghanistan over the last 20 years had made huge gains socially, intellectually, uh, politically. Uh, do you think at the end of the day, and we talk about moderate, but so much of that is going to get rolled back or you anticipate getting rolled back. I mean, how tragic is that? And is there really any hope you think that in a year or two, any of those gains stick around? We don't know exactly. We're certain to lose some. Uh, we're not certain to lose all. Uh, that's so. That's an easy answer. But you know, very likely there are going to be more restrictive dress codes and things like that. Again, the the hopeful story is that maybe Afghanistan ends up looking something like Iran does today. So in other words, a theocracy, but, you know, not Gilead from the handmaid's tale, right? And, you know, women have uh, certainly greater freedoms than they did in the 1990s. And, you know, the Taliban accepts, you know, having female doctors and midwives and allows women to have some education and so on. Hopefully, you know, regional players like Pakistan, Iran, China, um, Russia and even the United States can use that the leverage they have to, you know, st strongly pressure the Taliban to allow at least some some minimal rights. Um, but you know, it it is very worrying, and and we are going to see a rollback of rights, which is is uh, a, a an absolute tragedy when you think about the amount of investment. One of the problems, though, is that there's just no easy answer to this, and you know, many of the, you know, many of the American, my American liberal friends who would be arguing, you know, most vociferously over the years for women's rights and protecting women's rights in Afghanistan, they often are the same people who are saying, let's pull the troops out, right? So th there's always been a tension that those most committed to, you know, the, the kind of the idealistic mission in Afghanistan were often most skeptical about the kind of the military footprint. The truth is that, you know, what stops the Taliban from taking over Afghanistan is military force at the end of the day. And that's an uncomfortable reality, but it is true. And so if we sort of think, okay, what would have been required to really protect these rights indefinitely, 
it may well have been a surge of U.S. military forces and not just keeping the troops we have, but sending another five, 10,000 and saying, look, we're going to be there for five, 10, 20 years beyond this. And so those are hard choices. Yeah, that and I one of the things I've noticed with a lot of the coverage the last few days is a lot of people that had been talking about getting out of Afghanistan and this needs to end. It's almost like, you know, people said, I want you to get out of Afghanistan. Okay, we're out of Afghanistan. No, no, not like that. I don't know what people expected. I, I, exactly. I don't understand. And I think that I feel like that drives a lot of the media coverage of this. Like I am a broken down radio guy who's never been out of the country. I don't see, I didn't, I never saw a, something that didn't look kind of like this one way or the other. Right. Yeah. I think people are not willing to face up to, to tough realities. And, and from the beginning, I think that the Afghanistan war has been a war of illusions. You know, we went in with this overconfidence, this, you know, we'll build democracy and, you know, We'll be in and out in a couple of years and a little American can-do spirit. And then we move on to Saddam and we get rid of him. And then Iraq will be a beacon of freedom. And then we'll, we'll look around for some other evildoers. And, and, and the, the ignorance of Afghanistan is just incredible. It's, it's sort of like um, when the Americans arrive, it's like, it's like war of the world, except we're the aliens, right? We arrive in the Martian you know, tripods, right, stomping around. And the local people, many of them are kind of terrified. But we just don't understand it. You know, there's, Donald Rumsfeld wrote in his memoirs, and of course he was one of the architects of the war, and he, you know, strongly supported it. He wrote in his memoirs that, you know, the U.S. just had no idea about Afghanistan when it went in. He said, America didn't even have maps of Afghanistan. And that in some cases, U.S. soldiers were relying on old maps from the British Empire where the British were in Afghanistan in the 19th century. Now, this is pretty ironic because the British experience in Afghanistan was not so great either. Um, and if you want to know what a ba- really bad exit strategy looks like, consider the British, the Anglo-Afghan war that ended in the 1840s because the British retreated famously from Kabul and they retreated their entire force um, thousands of men with women and children and so on. And they were marching to this fort. And a few days later, a British sentry in the fort looked out and saw a single person on a pony stumbling. And so they sent out troops. To, and it was, it was a, a, a British guy. He was, he was almost dead. And he was a doctor with this force that had retreated from Kabul. And they said to him, where's the army? And he said, I am the army. He was the only survivor. The only British survivor. So, so that's a really bad exit. So maybe compared to that, we've done a little bit better. But to your point about just people not sort of facing up to the, the tough challenges, it reminds me of something Barack Obama said, where he said, we've discovered it's much harder to end a war than to start a war. And, and that's the point. that When you get to the, the situation like we've faced in the last few years, that this is a really difficult conflict, there are just no easy choices. And so the kind of the, the paths that Joe Biden was looking at when he became president, you know, surge of forces, okay, fine. But then the Taliban starts attacking American troops again. 
we, we have an uptick in casualties with no exit plan whatsoever, right? So are we there forever? Does, does Biden hand it over to the next guy? Right the way through to, you know, pull out a meeting. These are all bad choices. And it's, an, it's one of the most difficult things that a president can deal with is trying to wind down one of these kind of wars. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.